You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. is where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I know those of you that at home, the reality is you probably don't have a Bible in front of you, so no worries. We will uh, put it on the screen shortly. But we're going to be jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount after a three-month break. This is where we left off three months ago before the coronavirus. And so uh, I just thought we would pick back up here today. And I just want you to know that I was so excited about us reopening today. Um, I've decided to combine six sermons into one. And so, true story, uh, hopefully we won't be here uh, much longer than normal, um, but we are putting six sermons into one. Typically, I was going to break these up over six different Sundays, um, but I've decided just to put them all together um, for one sermon. And just so you know, to give you a heads up, here's what we're going to cover today. You ready for this? We're going to talk about murder. We're going to talk about lust. We're going to talk about adultery, retaliation, divorce, and hell. So, you are welcome. Uh, so, if you're like, why did I get up for this? And so, hey, who needs Netflix when you have the summer on the Mount, right? And so, um, how many of you in here have ever seen the soap opera Days of Our Lives? This is a safe place. Wow. Way more than you than I thought. I've watched a lot of Days of Our Lives growing up at my grandparents' house. When I would go over there in the summers, they would give us a Diet Coke, grilled cheese sandwich, and we'd watch Days of Our Lives. Some of you are like, that explains so much about you now, Jared. And so... Um, this sermon's going to feel kind of like that, okay? Uh, just so you know, it's going to be nitty, it's going to be gritty, it's going to be a little bit intense, but here's my promise to you. If you can stomach this today, um, if you will sit here with an open heart and an open mind, there's going to be some really big questions that's going to emerge inside of you. Um, questions like, what am I going to do with my anger? The reality is we all struggle, we all have anger. Anger in itself is not bad, but what we do with our anger can be very bad. It can either destroy somebody or it can actually uh, bring about a lot of good. So you're going to have to ask the question, what am I going to do with my anger? Another question that's going to come up is what am I going to do with my sexual desires? Uh, the truth is there is nothing wrong with having sexual desires. God created you as a sexual being. Uh, you should have sexual desires and so you shouldn't shame yourself for that. But again, depending on what you do with those desires will either uh, burn you down right, or it'll actually build you up. It'll warm up your life. Another question that's going to uh, come up during this is what am I going to do with my commitments, the commitments I make to other people? Am I going to keep my word? Or am I going to be flaky? Am I going to be kind of the, the sneaky text or the shady person? And then another question you're going to have to wrestle with is what am I going to do with my hurt? You know, the reality is we all live in a fallen, broken world. We all get hurt, and you're going to have to wrestle with that hurt. What am I going to do with it? And so here's the thing. A lot of questions should come up this morning as we dive into the text. And my promise to you is if you're willing to wrestle with these questions honestly before Jesus, it has the potential to absolutely change your life and I really believe change our city. And so that being said, I want to pray for us again. And by the way, if you're wearing a mask and you feel comfortable doing this, if it would help you a little bit, you can pull that down uh, during the teaching portion, not during the singing portion, but the teaching. You can pull that down if that would uh, help you. And so let me just pray uh, for us and then we'll dive into it. Father, again, I thank you for everyone who is here. We are all across the map. 
Uh, we all have different stories, even if we come from the same home. Every single person here is created uniquely, has a very unique and individual story. And so, Jesus, I thank you that right now I don't have to try to minister to everyone's hearts. You're going to do that through your word. And so I just pray right now that you would just be who you really are, that you would do what you do through your Holy Spirit, and that you would open the eyes of the blind. Help us to to hear. God, dig out our ears so that we can actually hear what you are saying today that will transform us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it was around this time four years ago, uh, my wife and I moved into our home in Carriage Hills with our kids. And uh, at the time, the house was basically move-in ready on the inside, but the outside left little to be desired. And so, um, for example, uh, the yard uh, was so bad that my neighbor who helped me move in, his 10-year-old daughter was with him. And she said, and I quote, this is the worst yard ever. And so it was pretty rough. And of course, uh, you know, I wasn't going to have that. And so I went, I borrowed a big red tiller. I tilled up my entire front yard and then I got a good deal on some zoysia grass, which is supposed to be kind of the, the Cadillac of grasses. And with the help of some friends, uh, from our missional community, I laid the grass down. And I think I have a picture of what it looked like when put on the screen. And so you can just kind of see, get kind of a, a glimpse of that's how thick, that's how lush, that's how green my yard was on year one. The problem is I didn't really tend to the grass like I was supposed to. It didn't fertilize it, didn't water it, didn't really pay attention to it. And so by the next year, um, here is what I had. And so that was in the summer. That was not the winter, okay? Um, that is dead. That is brown. That's disgusting. I think we can do a side-by-side uh, picture of these two. And so look at that. Year one, beautiful, green, lush, vibrant. You would want to take a nap on it. You want to take your shoes off and, and just walk on it. The next Right, very next year, because I didn't pay attention to it, I didn't care for it like it should be. It's brown, it's prickly, it's dead, it's disgusting. It was something that caused others, even in this church, to make fun of me. In fact, Brandon uh, McNeil, he put a sign in my yard that said Yard of the Month uh, on that one, just because he thought it'd be so funny. And so that's bad news, but the good news is I actually did a soil sample and I found out the reason my yard basically went to crap is because it had developed in the soil this fungus that began to spread and then infect my entire grass. The good news about that is because I knew what was in my soil, I was able to to then treat it, which then here's a picture of last year. I think I can show you this. This is my yard last year. And so as you can see, again, because I got below the surface and I treated the yard with what it needed to be treated with, again, we have lush, vibrant, green grass as it should be. And if you can just leave that picture up, the reason I share that with you this morning is that picture you see of my yard is a picture of what I believe Jesus wants to do in our lives today. And what I mean by that is just as I wanted to get below the surface of my yard in order to move it from famine to flourishing, Jesus Christ, the real Jesus, not to be confused with the religious Jesus or the counterfeit Jesus, but the real resurrected Jesus wants to get to the root and into the soil of your lives in my life so that we can move from a place of famine to flourishing. And I, I just wanted to open that way because look, when we come to this really intense section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is is going to talk about murder and adultery and divorce and all of these hot topics. It's important to know that Jesus today is not primarily after your behavior modification, but he's after heart transformation. He is wanting to show you and me today a totally new way to be human as we learn how to live these wholehearted lives where the inside matches the outside. And this is why Jesus in verse 20 Before he gets into this section, he starts in chapter 5, verse 20. You can look with me. Maybe we can put it on the screen. 
Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, they were the religious leaders of the day. They were like the, the moral ninjas. Nobody was more moral than the Pharisees. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be clear, what Jesus is not saying here is he is not saying that if you want to be happy, if you want to flourish, you have to do more good stuff than the Pharisees did. That's not what Jesus is saying, but rather what he is saying is this. If you want to move past an empty religion, if you want to move past just this kind of idea where, you know, maybe you're like, yeah, like I think I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but there's no flourishing, there's no life, there's no joy, there's no peace. What Jesus says, unless you move past this surface level righteousness that is more about your behavior and your performance than your heart, then you will never experience the life you were created to experience in the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus then does is he's going to now give us six examples of how do we experience this kind of life? How do we move from famine to flourishing? How do we experience a wholehearted spirituality? And the first example that he gives us, if you look in verse 21, is he talks about murder. And here's what he says. You have heard what it is said to the people long ago. And he's talking about the law here that these people would have memorized. You've heard it said long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, on the surface, this seems like a pretty straightforward command, right? I read this, and I'm like, okay, I'm good. Check. Let's move on. All right, my wife and I, we watched The People versus O.J. Simpson earlier this year on Netflix, which is fantastic. And I read this first command, and I'm like, okay, I'm not like O.J., right? I'm not jacked up like that dude. Like, I haven't murdered anybody, so let's move on to the next one. I think I'm good on this. But then look at what Jesus says next in verse 22. But I tell you, Anyone who is even angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, to ensure there's no confusion here, um, to be angry in itself is not a sin. Uh, God gets angry throughout the Old Testament. We see Jesus get angry at the Pharisees in the New Testament. I think of that story where Jesus walks into the temple, and uh, basically the, the religious leaders of the day have turned the temple, the church, into a business and Jesus doesn't like that. And so he says, look, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so what does Jesus do? In anger, he turns over the tables and drives people out with a whip. So there is such thing as a righteous anger. You should get angry about certain things in this world. Uh, you should be angry right now over the injustice that we see. You should be angry over, over the oppression from those in power and authority. We should be angry over evil and brokenness. So there is a righteous anger that leads to a holy passion, but then there is an unrighteous anger that leads to destruction. And that's the anger Jesus wants to deal with here. What Jesus is talking about here in verse 22 is this narcissistic anger, an anger from a wounded ego that says, basically, how dare you talk to me that way? Who do you think you are? to question me, right? Or who do you think you are to cut me off in traffic? This is the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. Notice in verse 22, he says, if this anger is below the surface, if this is in your heart, you will be subject to judgment. He then goes on and it gets a little bit more intense. He says, and again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, and you know who you are today, if you've been saying Raka, right? Um, Anyone who says rocket, which by the way is a four-letter word, literally a four-letter word in Aramaic. And it would be, if I could put it politely, it'd be like saying you idiot or you dumb A, right? Or something like that. Um, anyone who says this, listen to this, is answerable to the court. And by the court here, he doesn't mean like the earthly court. He means the heavenly court. 
And then anyone who says you fool, and the Greek word here is the word moral, which is where we get our English word from moron. He says you will be in danger of what? Of the fire of hell. Now, because Jesus has brought it up, let's talk about hell for a minute, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions around this. Um, It is important to note that the word Jesus uses here for hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was actually a real place in Jesus's day, which means if you would have been listening to the Sermon on the Mount, you would have been hearing what Jesus had to say here, and you heard him say Gehenna, you would not think of some obscure like place, there's a lake of fire, like, you know, somewhere out there in the future, but rather, there's a picture of it on the screen now, you would think of a place that looks like this. This is modern day hell, or Gehenna. Some of you are like, that actually doesn't look as bad as I thought it was, you know, it's going to look. It looks like it's gone through a little bit of a remodel or something, right? Um, this is modern day hell. This is modern day Gehenna. Don't look that bad, but here's the thing. In Jesus's day, the valley of Gehenna, or as it's translated here, the valley of hell was the place where innocent children were slaughtered. It was a place that was so evil that King Josiah pronounced a curse over the entire valley. And therefore, in Jesus's day, by the time we come to Matthew chapter five, Gehenna had become the city dump. And so literally, it was a place south of the city where you would throw your garbage over the wall and into the land of hell where it would burn in this fire 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just consuming your garbage and your feces and your waste and all of that. And so here's the thing. Here's what Jesus is saying. According to Jesus, if you do not flush unrighteous anger and bitterness out of your heart, if you leave it unchecked and unabated, hell will begin to grow within you which will then set a trajectory for where you are going in the future. In other words, Jesus says, you probably better take your anger seriously. You better take it seriously. This is why in verse 23, if you keep reading, he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Now, this is Jesus actually trying to be funny. And if you would have been in the first century and you would have heard this, you actually would have laughed. We don't think it's funny, but people would have laughed in the first century, and here's why. If you remember, where is Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount? He's in Galilee. Galilee is 80 miles from the temple. And so what Jesus just said is if you travel 80 miles with your sacrifice, which, by the way, was more than a line item in our budget. It wasn't like, you know, today I just had to, like, you know, text to give or whatever. Back then, it was like you had to take your goat, right, little Fido with you, or your bull, or whatever, and you would go 80 miles, and Jesus says, when you finally get there, and you're finally, you know, everything's ready and prepared, and you're about to make a sacrifice, and you're like, oh, somebody has something against me. Leave your your bull there, your goat there, trek back 80 miles, go to the person's house, say, I want to reconcile with you, I'm sorry, let's make this right. Then if you make it right, go back 80 miles, make the sacrifice, then go 80 miles back home. People would have heard that and be like, nobody would ever do that, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, do that. Do that. It's that big of a deal. The question is, why is this such a big deal? Here's what you have to understand today. The reason this is a big deal to Jesus is, please hear this, your relationship with God is always tied up in your relationship with others. I want to say that again in case you got distracted. Your relationship with God is always tied up in your relationship with others. Which means, please hear this, like it or not, if God feels distant to you right now, if worship feels stale this morning, if your prayers feel like they are hitting the ceiling, there could be many reasons for why that is. 
The one very possible reason is you are not at peace with somebody else, which means you're not at peace with God. I think of that passage in 1 Peter where Peter literally says that your prayers, man, will be hindered according to how you relate to your wife. If you don't love and lead your wife well, God won't hear your prayers. How crazy is that? Your relationship with God is absolutely connected to your relationship with others. And so Jesus says, hey, you want to flourish, you want to be happy, you got to uproot that unrighteous anger and throw it into fire before it consumes you. And then if that's not convicting enough, look at what Jesus moves into next. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And that's from the law, from the Old Testament. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Ouch. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. By the way, Jesus is using hyperbole here. Please don't go home and try this. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What? And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, again, to be clear, what Jesus is not saying here is Jesus is not saying it's a sin for you to find someone attractive. And by the way, if you're, if you're married, please don't get mad at your spouse if they find someone attractive. It, it, that's not sinful. Jesus is not saying it is sinful for you to look and say, that's a really pretty person or that's a really handsome man. What he is saying is it's wrong and it's sinful for you to objectify another human being. He's saying it's wrong for you to look at someone who's not your spouse with sexual intent. And I know for some of you, you might, maybe you hear this, men and women, and you're like, that's impossible. How in the world could anybody ever do that? How could, you, how could you possibly live in such a way that you don't lust after someone else who's not your spouse? And I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, you know, you can't keep a bird from flying in your hair, but you can keep it from making a nest. And, and what he meant by that is this. You can't change the fact that if you think someone else is pretty or not, or attractive. You shouldn't even shame yourself for that. Like, you can't help that. If you think someone's pretty, you think they're beautiful, whatever, well-designed by God, like, you can't help that. But what you can help is you can make a decision not to continue to look at that person and undress them with your mind's eye. You can help that. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. And listen, I know in our culture, we laugh this off. This is so silly. Dude, it's 2020. Jesus, get with the times. I mean, lust is just not a big deal. We watch lust-filled movies. We listen to lust-filled music. We make lust-filled jokes. It's not a big deal to many of us, but if you notice that Jesus, it's a very big deal. And here's why it's a big deal. Because when you lust after another person, you, de- you actually dehumanize that person. And you dehumanize yourself in the process. You become less like a human that is created in the image of God and more like an animal that is driven by instinct. Which, listen, then means this. Over time, you will become controlled by your appetites. You will become an addict. You will become addicted and enslaved by your desires, which means, and you've got to remember this, freedom, guys. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the ability to not do whatever you want. But whenever you give over these animalistic desires, you become the kind of person who has to do whatever you want to do. That's, that's slavery, which means you come to a place where you have to look at pornography. You have to take advantage of another man or another woman. You have to scroll through Facebook or Instagram and look for pictures that you can basically fantasize about. You have to do that, which you know if you've been there, and I know many of us have, this eventually, when you give over to these desires, they leave behind a wake of destruction. A wake of destruction. And this is why Jesus says, man, if you're struggling with lust, I know the culture says, dude, chill out, but you better cut off your hand. 
you better gouge out your eye. And again, Jesus is not being literal here. And here's one way I know Jesus is being literal, because if he was being literal, I'm pretty sure he would have named another body part that is men we need to cut off. Okay? Um, okay. Woo! All right. So Jesus is not being literal. What he is doing is saying this. If you have lust in your heart, you need to take extreme measures. So for me, what this looks like, for me, what it looks like is I don't have Facebook and Instagram on my phone. I'm not saying you shouldn't have Facebook or Instagram on your phone. I'm just too spiritually immature to do it. Okay? It's more about my immaturity than your, you know, than maybe your immaturity or whatever. But I can't have those on my phone. Uh, I also have to have covenant eyes on my phone and my computer. That's an accountability software that literally limits any sort of questionable websites. It keeps me from being able to view those. And then I just won't watch movies that have nudity in them. Because that just lodges things in my brain that honestly, I just have a track record of acting on later. And so I, I just can't do it. I, I know I cannot do it. And so Jesus here, he says, man, you got lust in your heart. If you don't want to be in dangers of the fire of hell, get rid of it. Throw it over the wall. It's trash. You got to get rid of it. Uh, how are we doing so far? You know, okay. Who's ready to talk about divorce? All right. <clears throat> um, some of you are like, I knew we should have just given it one more week before we went back. Just one more week. <clears throat> All right. And so um, I'm going to be gentle, okay? So please, and, and Jesus, I think, is gentle here. Uh, verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Again, this is all over the Old Testament he's referring to here. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, on the surface, listen, guys, it seems like what Jesus is saying is that the only grounds for divorce is adultery. He's not saying that. Um, Jesus is not really trying to get into the whole, he, he's not really trying to give you an exhaustive list of what counts for divorce and doesn't. What he's doing is he's, he's entering into a fierce debate that was going on at this time between two very religious people groups that are debating over the law that Jesus just mentioned in verse 31. And in essence, here's what the law was. It was a law given by Moses back in Deuteronomy 24, and it was actually given, listen, it was given for the purpose of protecting the woman. What was happening back in this time period is if a man divorced a woman because it was a male-dominated culture, a woman was going to be left on the streets or forced into prostitution in order to make a living. And so Moses gives a law to protect the women. But here's what happened. These kind of, this kind of liberal religious group, they began to grow in popularity. And here's what they were teaching. Actually, a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason. So if you're annoyed with your wife, divorce her. If she don't cook good, divorce her. If you don't, if she's gained some weight and you don't think she's that pretty anymore, divorce her. And if that's not bad enough, what they were also teaching is though men can divorce a woman for any and every reason, a woman can never divorce a man for any reason. So as you can imagine, Jesus is just not down with this. And so he steps into the debate, to the debate. And in verse 32, listen to this. He says, actually, if you divorce your wife simply because she isn't pleasing you, if you divorce your wife simply because I'm just not in love with you anymore, or some dumb excuse like that, you make her a victim of your adultery. And then not only that, but you set her up to where any man she marries also commits adultery. Now, I know that probably raises a lot of questions for a lot of people, and we just don't have time to get into it today. So I would just encourage you, if you want more information on divorce and remarriage, buy the book Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Brewer. It's under 200 pages, and it would be, I think, an excellent resource for you. Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Brewer. The point I just want to make for now is this. If you find yourself married, or if you want to one day be married, 
You need to know that according to Jesus, marriage is meant to be a relationship of covenant, not convenience. It is meant to be a relationship whenever you exchange your vows where you say, I'm going to be to you as I should be, even if you're not as you should be to me. Marriage is the kind of relationship where you do not enter into it and say, basically, I'm just looking for someone to, to help me like, be better at Project Me. It's not you entering into a relationship and saying, I want you to make much of me, but I want to make much of you. It's meant to say, I'm not coming into this so that you can serve me, but so I can serve you. And then rather than just looking for any sort of excuse to get out of marriage, you try to have the attitude of, I'm going to extend the same grace and mercy and love and compassion to you that Jesus himself has extended to me. And by the way, I just want to say this real fast, um, since it's already probably a little bit uncomfortable in here. This doesn't just apply to relationship and marriage. This applies, this applies to all of relationships especially in the church. Uh, some of you remember, uh, Ryan and Libby, you were there. When we first started the church, there was eight people in the church, and then it blew up. We doubled in size overnight and went to 16. And so we were the fastest growing church at Paragold at one point. And whenever people first showed up, there was nothing cool about the church, no youth ministry, nothing fun, no, we didn't know what we were doing. We were stumbling all over ourselves. And so the people who first showed up, Randy and Lou, you would remember this, right? You show up just to serve, because that's all there is to do. Like, you can't show up and not serve. But what happens is as the church gets bigger, it tends to get more comfortable. This isn't just our church, it's any church. When we go from an outward focus to inward focus, and I just want you to know if this is your view of the church, where it is more about consuming than contributing, if this is our view, if we look at the church primarily as a community of convenience rather than covenant, then the mission of God is going to be hijacked. And so we have to be very careful here. Jesus says, in a culture that tells us to use relationships, whether it's in marriage or in the church, seek to serve others. Stay committed through thick and thin. Don't show up and say, what are you going to do for me? But what can I put into this? And Jesus says, if you will do that, listen, then you will flourish. Then you will be happy. Then you will find meaning and significance. Next, he moves on and he talks about oaths. Look at verse 33. He says, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oaths, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even your hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, again, at first glance, I read this, and I'm like, I think I'm doing pretty good at this. I actually honestly can't even remember the last time I've swore by Jerusalem. Right? And so maybe you read it and you're like, yeah, I think I'm good on this one. But as Dallas Willard points out in his commentary, Jesus' primary concern here is not so much with the words you speak, but the motives of your heart. And so just let me read Willard because uh, we're running late on time and he says it better than me anyway. He says, the essence of swearing that Jesus targets here is about invoking someone or something else, especially God, to make your words seem more significant and weighty. The aim is to impress others with seriousness or piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation that is designed to override judgment or input of others in order to possess them for our own purposes. It's manipulation, or as they say in our culture, spin. Jesus says this is evil. Instead of loving and honoring others with truthfulness, the intent is to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and choices of others. Put another way, Jesus is saying the problem here is not that you're swearing by Jerusalem. The problem is the temptation that you have to lie in order to make yourself look better than you really are. And we do this, we're all tempted to do this, right? I mean, we do this on social media, when we airbrush, when we filter, when we position just right, right? I do it whenever I do this right here, and I get the picture, I push my bicep out. 
Yeah, it's this right here. Um, and so we do this on social media. Whenever our kids look always totally obedient and perfect and happy and we've got, you know, our Bible setting out and this and that and our music going, like hashtag blessed, right? It's like we're so holy. Um, we do it through embellishment. I think of the guy who catches a fish and at first it's this big, then it's that big, then it's that big. Uh, I ran across my, a picture of myself. This is uh, 16 years ago. Uh, look at that guy right there. 16 years ago, this is me holding a fish. Anybody notice anything weird about this picture? Yeah, uh, I, I'm way back from the camera and the fish is way forward. Uh, which made, which made literally, it was a three pound bass, look like it was like 13 pounds, right? That's embellishment. And this is what Jesus is getting after here. He's saying, look, this actually runs, it's a little bit humorous, but it runs against the core ethic of my kingdom. Because when you're not honest about who you are or what you've done, when you're not honest about your weaknesses or your flaws or your failures, here's what happens, guys. You literally break down the healthy community that Jesus wants to build that we all desperately need. And so according to Jesus, he says, you want to be happy, you want to flourish, stop covering up. I mean, keep your mouth covered, I guess, if you want to, but you know what I mean. Stop, cover, stop wearing a mask, right? The, the fake mask. Stop, right? Stop hiding the truth from one another. Be honest, like be a person of integrity. And then finally, you've done very good so far. Jesus then moves to this idea of retaliation and enemy love. Look at verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek also. Let him slap it. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, go ahead and give him your coat. If anyone forces you to go to my, which by the way, in this culture, a soldier, a Roman soldier, could at any point, even if you're on a date with your wife, could be like, hey, you, go carry this whatever package one mile. They could do that by law, and you'd have to do it, or you'd be arrested. If someone asks you to go one mile, go ahead and go two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I cannot think of a better time for this teaching than in our cultural moment. As our nation seems to be ripping apart at the seams, I cannot think of a better time for us to hear, meditate on, and apply Jesus' words. As many of you know, because of the murder of Greg Floyd, an already hostile nation is raging against itself right now. And guys, what has to stop is us demonizing people on the other side. Republicans do it to Democrats, the Democrats do it to Republicans, white to black, black to white. It's got to stop. It has to stop. Because, listen, the natural temptation, what Jesus is hitting on here, is what is the natural temptation if somebody hurts you? To hurt them back. You black mine, I'm going to black your eye. You say something bad about me on social media, I'll say something bad about you on social media. But notice, according to Jesus, he says the best way to fight violence is not with more violence. But the best way to fight evil or cruelty or shame or criticism, it's not with more of the same, but it's with, notice, a suffering, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love. He said that's how you overcome evil. I think of the words of Martin Luther King um, that I think all of us seem to apply where he says to our most bitter opponents we say we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering we shall meet your physical force with soul force do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you throw us in jail we shall still love you bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you but be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer One day we shall win freedom, 
but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to the hurt or to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That's what Jesus is getting at right here in verse 38 through 42. And by the way, this is not pacifism. Uh, to be a pacifist is to do nothing. Notice in here, Jesus is telling you to do something. He says, when someone hits you, what do you do? You do nothing? Nope. You turn the other cheek and let them hit it. That's an action. That's not pacifism. Someone tells you to go a mile, you just sit down and do nothing? No, you go two miles. That's action. What Jesus is saying here is you respond when you're wrong, but just make sure you respond with love. Respond with grace. Respond with mercy. And by the way, before you get excited about this, for some of you that are like, yeah, let's go do it. Remember, this way of love got Martin Luther King killed. And it got Jesus killed. You know, to follow Jesus, we need to hear this today, man. There's a cost to it. We've been talking about this. There's a cost to following Jesus. It'll cost you, and I believe more than ever in our culture, it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. Um, To follow Jesus is not to live a life free from pain and suffering, but it is to be able to live a life where you're free from the fear of pain and suffering. Because though there will be a death, on the other side of that death will become a resurrection. And we'll experience the life that we were created to experience. And that's what Jesus ends with. We'll just end here, verse 43 to 48. He says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I talked to a man this past week, talked about praying for his enemy and how when he prayed for his enemy, it softened his heart. That's what happens when you pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? We're going to talk about this next week. Jesus is actually okay with you doing something for a reward. What reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do this. Tax collectors were considered the most like vile people. They were the traitors. They were the oppressing their own people. It's like, dude, even tax collectors love people who love them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. And look at this, guys. In case you're looking for something to do this afternoon, Jesus says this, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. The word for perfect here literally means to be whole or to be complete. Here's what Jesus is getting at. The reason he wants you to follow him is because he wants to complete you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to make you into a new human being that is so counterculture yet so filled with joy and peace and life. And if you notice according to Jesus, what is the mark of maturity for a disciple that he ends with? Think about this. The mark of maturity of where you are in your discipleship to Jesus is enemy love. So the more you're able to love your enemy, the more you're able to love people that you think are stupid, idiot, dumb, bigots, racist, whatever it may be, the more you're able to love them, the more mature you are. The less you're able to love them, the less mature you are. And by the way, like I know this is not easy. Some of you have been hurt deeply in ways that I can't imagine, but this is why more than ever in this cultural moment, guys, we desperately need the healing balm of Jesus Christ. We more than ever, this has to move. This has to move from an intellectual idea to into our hearts where we cling to the one, Jesus Christ, who listens, knows how you feel. The one who went to the cross, and the Bible says at the cross, by his wounds, our wounds are healed. And at the cross, what's so amazing is before Jesus died, rather than condemning his enemies, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Do you realize whenever Jesus prayed that prayer for his enemies, he was praying for you? 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, I'll end here. The Apostle Paul says this, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Whether you realize it or not, you were born an enemy of God. We've all been enemies of God. And if now you are a disciple of Jesus, how did God win you over? Think about this. He did not win you over through violence and hate. He did not turn the sword against you and say, believe like me. He turned the sword against himself. And he went to the cross and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins so that now you can be reconciled to the God who alone can save you and satisfy you. And it is only whenever you begin to let that grace and that mercy and love fall into your heart and you then extend it to others. And then that's what produces a society that is happy and whole and reflecting the kingdom of heaven. That being said, I want to just invite you, whether you're at home or here, to close your eyes for just one moment. And I want to create some space to process what we just talked about. We'll be done in just a couple moments. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come forward, if you will. And without looking around, I know this is... Some pretty heavy-hitting stuff today, and so I just want to encourage you to, to honestly process before the Lord where your heart is right now. I want you to just ask Jesus through his Spirit to reveal what's really going on below the surface, what's really going on in your heart this morning. And by the way, just a reminder, you'll know that Jesus is talking to you if it's a sweet and tender and kind voice. If you feel right now guilt and shame and condemnation, it's more than likely your own voice. Jesus will only try to invite you in a deeper life. And so I just want to encourage you to ask this question. What is going on in my heart right now? What am I doing with my anger? What am I doing with my sexual desires? Am I trying to manage them my way, the culture's way, or Jesus' way? How am I viewing my relationships? What's the point of them? Am I a person who is staying true to my word? How am I responding to my enemies and the violence in the world? Is there bitterness in my heart? Is there revenge that I'm seeking? My prayer is that our church will be as beautiful as Jesus. And that we will, by how we live and how we love, show the world another way of being human. Because if we take this seriously, Jesus will change not only our hearts, but he will change our city. Let's pray together as the band leads us in one more song. Jesus, you are so kind. You're so compassionate. Your teachings are so radical. They're just as radical today as they ever have been. I pray that you, through your spirit, would give us faith and repentance. That you would help us to trust that you know better how to run our lives than we do. If there's somebody who's watching at home or in this room who has given you their afterlife but has not really trusted you fully yet, Jesus, in this life, I pray that that would change. Would you help them, God, right now to feel your love? It's your kindness, God, that leads to repentance. Remove the harsh thoughts that people have towards you. Help them to see you as a good God who wants to lead into life and life abundantly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.